This is an ABC podcast. G'day, Norman. Didn't expect to see you around here this early in the year. No, I can't believe it. Cannot believe it. But here we are. I think we promised our, uh, our audience a break from us until at least February. But no, here we are. This pandemic just won't quit. It's, it's almost like ignoring it isn't making it go away. No. So whenever we talk about you know, stopping Coronacast, a new variant comes along. And um, whenever we talk about having a holiday, a new variant comes along. So, so we've, here we are. We've learned our lesson. With great pleasure. <laughs> with great pleasure. With uh, the first episode of 2022 on Friday the 7th of January. That's it. So, yeah, on our last episode of 2021, we had 3,797 new cases that day. And we were like, oh, gosh, that's the big number. Norman, yesterday, Australia-wide, there were more than 68,000 new cases of COVID. And even if this new strain is is less uh, severe, like we've heard it could be all along, that's still a pretty big number that could that could translate into some pretty severe pressures on our system. Well, let's be accurate. The 68,000 is the number of positive tests Almost certainly, that's an underestimate. So just to, you know, quickly on this, 2020, when we never had a positivity rate much, pretty much above 1%. For every 100 lab tests that were being done, only one or so was coming back positive. That's right, which means that you're capturing, you're, you're fairly confident that you're capturing just about everybody who's infected. When that positivity rate goes up, it means that the number of people who are negative is pretty low, which means there are other people out there with the infection. So when it was well below 1%, we probably underestimated the number of cases by a factor of three. Now we're up at one in three, which is extraordinary uh, rates. So let's be really conservative and say we're underestimating by a factor of five. That means yesterday there were well over 300,000 cases. It means that there's two million people a week being infected. And remember, it's not all Omicron. This is a Delta outbreak as well. Okay, so before we get too far ahead of ourselves, what do we think? There's only six, no, There's only 26 million people in Australia overall. This has got to peak at some stage. When's that going to be? Well, I've been asking around and nobody's willing to put their name to um, a confident estimate. Some people have been saying at the end of January, beginning of February, then they're saying, ooh, look at the numbers going on now. It could actually be sooner than that. So nobody's willing to actually say when the peak will be at the moment. There's no sign of the peak yet, but it could come more quickly than we think. So that's case numbers, but what's that translating into in terms of the stress on the medical system, which was always the biggest threat with COVID? Well, Coronacast listeners will be following this and they'll know that the hospital system in New South Wales, Victoria and starting in other states as well, starting to really show signs of stress as um, healthcare workers are furloughed or they're getting infected themselves and as increasing numbers of people are being admitted to hospital. And when you start to actually look at the admissions to hospital, we, wrote, we don't really know the mix in the community between Omicron and Delta. They're assuming it's mostly Omicron, but there's still Delta around. But as you start to look at the hospital population, there's more Delta than Omicron, and there's certainly more Delta than Omicron in the ICU admissions. So the, the stress is there. There is decoupling. It is at a lower level and it's decoupling because of immunisation. But the hospitalisations are going up and Sharon Lewin the other day on 7.30 was saying that she is now getting worried about the increase in hospitalisations. And I've been speaking to Professor Alan Saul, who's an, who's an epidemiologist and modeler, and if nothing were to happen, and just looking at the next week, they're saying there could be as many as 6,000 admissions in New South Wales and 400 people in ICU. That's if nothing happens. So that's, that's not going to ha- It's almost certainly not going to happen because 
Remember, and you've got to keep on remembering this with COVID-19, what we're seeing today is the result of stuff that happened a week or two ago. So New South Wales did increase their level of restrictions in late December, and we should be starting to see that flowing through now. But I suspect that they know that that could be the scenario in New South Wales, and it can't possibly be allowed to happen. So I think what you'll see in New South Wales over the next few days, and if you don't, then there could be trouble brewing, which is changes to the way you look after people in hospital, maybe much stricter criteria about whether you get in, maybe stricter criteria about whether you get out, maybe freeing up lockdowns in residential aged care so that elderly people in hospital can get out. They'll be doing things like that and then trying to get general practitioners in larger numbers, albeit it's a holiday period, to look after people at home and take the heat off hospitals. But something will have to happen over the next few days. It's still very early days to know what the true flow-through is. So there's there's a couple of things that's driving this big spike that we're seeing at the moment. One is the fact that we've opened up the borders and the restrictions have been eased. And the other is that we're looking at this other variant that we were starting to hear about at the end of last year, Omicron. And when we were last talking to our audience, Norman, we were saying scientists say that we need more time to understand this new variant better. Well, they've had a bit more time now. We've given that to them. What do we know now about Omicron that we didn't know in late November, early December last year? Let's be clear. The number of cases coming in from overseas is tiny. It's absolutely tiny and minuscule. So that's almost irrelevant to this conversation now. This is almost entirely an internal Australian epidemic, one within our borders. We cannot blame people from overseas for this at all. So what we know is that the virus does seem to be less severe in its own right. Uh, Research done in more than one lab has shown that it seems to have a predilection for the nose and throat. As opposed to what? Well, as opposed to nose and throat then going down into the lung. So it's not so sticky when it comes to the receptors in the lung. It's more sticky to the nose and throat, which could be contributing to its contagiousness, but is certainly lowering its severity. But British research is showing that when you just look at unvaccinated people who've not been exposed to any COVID-19, regardless of their variant before, that the reduction, so what they're showing in Britain overall, for example, is the third of the risk of hospitalisation. But that takes into account previous COVID-19 infection and vaccination as well as unvaccinated people. If you subtract, take out the unvaccinated people who have not had COVID-19 before, the reduction in severity is there, but it's not as much as you might think. And so compared to Delta, it's a bit less, maybe 20 to 50% less, but it's not down at a third. But there is good news about the vaccines. So while the vaccines, while the virus, the Omicron has evaded immunity to some extent in terms of the antibodies, the immediate response to prevent transmission of infection, uh, researchers in Southern California and elsewhere, when they've looked at it, they've looked at the T-cell response. Now, the T-cell response is where the cells of the immune system themselves, not the chemicals in the, in the bloodstream, the antibodies, the cells themselves, the T-cells, which can attack the virus inside infected cells, the T-cell response is well-preserved in all the vaccines they've looked at, which is great news, and it's why severe disease and hospitalisation is protected against. There is diminution, but it's not as much as you see with the antibodies. That's great news so far. 
But like you say, the antibodies, the other part of it, well, and another part of the immune system, it's very complicated, as immunologists like to tell us, uh, is not as effective against Omicron, which has implications for some of the treatments that we use to help people at high risk of severe COVID. Yes, so uh, people might have heard of the monoclonal antibodies. So these are antibodies that were developed to be specific against the COVID-19 virus. When they've tested them against Omicron, they've almost all fallen by the wayside. So the, the antibodies that uh, President Trump got, for example, they don't seem to be very effective at all against Omicron. And so, but a couple of them are. So citrivimab, which is one of the ones that we've acquired here, and AstraZeneca has a combination of two antibodies. It seems to be pretty effective against Omicron. So two, a couple of the antibody preparations do seem to be working, but uh, various others seem to have fallen by the wayside. And then we're left with the antivirals. Yeah, so what about antivirals? Because we were hearing a lot about Paxlovid, the Pfizer antiviral that had been developed. How effective are these antiviral drugs against the virus? Well, um, it's assumed. So first of all, we've had a question about Paxlovid, about whether what's its approval, um, how's the approval going? And we acquired the TGA, Therapy Goods Administration, and they're still considering it, and their expert committee is having a look at it on the 13th of January. Um, it's assumed that the antivirals will still be infect will still be effective because they work in a much more fundamental way in terms of how the virus operates. So there's a lot of optimism about how the antivirals will work. So how how are they going to be used? Well, that's the question. That's a very important question in a world where uh, we're moving towards rapid antigen tests, personal trust, and moving away from PCR tests. Because for these antivirals to work, you've got to be given them in the first five days. So how do you find people who are infected? How do you prove they're infected? And how are they given? Now, at the moment, the provisional plans are that it's actually, these are going to be hospital-only drugs, so they're not going to be for GPs. So the complexity around implementing these antivirals is actually enormous. And then who is going to get them? Are they, is, so if you've got somebody who's 85 and fragile or a young kid who has got multiple comorbidities, do you just give it to them blind uh, in the hope that they've got it, maybe with one positive ant rapid antigen test? These are the things that have got to be answered. That brings me to something I really wanted to talk about today, Norman, which is the policies around COVID now. We've seen a real shift before we were flattening the curve and then we were COVID zero pretty much. And now it seems a bit unclear who gets the lab test, who does home tests. How does that play into how the medical system interacts with people with COVID? What do we know about the the policy as it is now beyond the, what the Prime Minister said a couple of days ago, which was just ride the wave? That's the policy, ride the wave. <laughs> and it looks as though National Cabinet has bought into that where um, you've got the chief health officer in Queensland saying, you know, expect to be, for everybody to be infected. So we're, we are effectively letting this rip. Yeah, there are some restrictions in place. New South Wales was about three weeks too late in implementing that. That's why New South Wales is seeing such stress on its hospital system. And Victoria is being a bit more careful than New South Wales and consequently is behind New South Wales in terms of the number of cases. But they will catch up with a, with a, a bit of a delay. But let it rip is the, is the process. Now, we had clear if you like, goals in 2020, which was to flatten the curve. And then the federal government was dragged kicking and screaming by the states towards a COVID zero approach, which is, well, not that there would be no COVID around, but that we would have as close to zero spread. And that worked to a varying extent in different jurisdictions. 
Now it's let it rip. And we have not had a community discussion because everybody's tired of this. Governments are showing that they're tired of this. Nobody wants to go back into lockdown. But what are our criteria? Because people will end up in hospital and people will end up dying, albeit at a lower level. Have we had a discussion about how many deaths we're willing to accept moving forward? In a lot of situations, we don't notice the fact that there may be a thousand drug deaths a year or a thousand influenza deaths a year. So we're happy with a thousand deaths a year. And then who? Um, if you know somebody who's had an organ, a kidney transplant, if you know somebody who's on cancer chemotherapy, if you know a child who's got multiple comorbidities, those are the people who might die. And then there are unvaccinated, disadvantaged people throughout Australia. So the number of people who would know somebody who might die in an Aboriginal community would be more than perhaps you and I would know. So th this, this is a, a difficult discussion which we are walking into. This is really sobering stuff, but I guess a question that I have, and I'm assuming other people have as well, is we have done a lot in the past two years to get Australia vaccinated to a very high level. Like what else is on the menu in terms of mitigating COVID when we're already at sort of 80-ish, 90-ish percentage vaccination? Well, remember uh, what we've been saying now for some months in a pre-Omicron uh, world is that uh, if you look at the Doherty modelling, the Burnett Institute modelling, the, the reputable models all say the same thing, is that you control, and this is before Omicron, you control this with a combination of vaccination and test, trace, isolate, quarantine and public health measures. So test, trace, isolate, quarantine is gone, pretty much. Yeah, because if you're just doing home tests, then how do you even track, test and trace those people? We don't know how many cases they are, so it's hard to plan accordingly. And we are making an assumption as a nation that it's all over. This is the last one. This is the last time we'll be dealing with an outbreak of uh, COVID-19. And there is zero evidence to support that idea. It's a wish and a prayer because new variants are arising all the time. A new variant was reported in France recently uh, from Cameroon. A pathology contact of mine in Durban thinks they've found a, a new variant in South Africa. Now, these probably turned out to be nothing at all, but the next variant could be more, well, if it's going to take over from Omicron, will be more contagious, could be more vaccine uh, evasive, could be more virulent. We don't know that. This is not the end. And we've abandoned the fundamentals of control. This is real end time stuff, Norman. Like, I don't want to stay inside forever. No, we don't need to stay inside forever, but we've got to respond quickly. We've got to get kids immunised. We've got to be practical about this. But there is one, in, one nice preprint that's just come out, which does give some hope about a practical use of rapid antigen tests, which could actually minimise contagion using rapid antigen tests. And, and this is largely a study looking at you know, how quickly could you get healthcare workers back to work. And it's a, it's a British and South African study. And in brief, you could, with no testing at all, you're probably pretty safe getting it down to seven days. But what they're saying is with rapid antigen tests one day after another, you could actually get the isolation period down to very, very few days, maybe as few as three days. And it's just about deciding when you're going to do your test after you've tested positive. You've got tested positive, you go into isolation. And they think that once you've had two rapid antigen tests in a row that are negative, you're okay to come out because rap what rapid antigen tests are really good at doing if you repeat them is finding out whether you're contagious. 
So you might still have the infection on board, but are you contagious? And two in a row that's negative would suggest you're not contagious. So they're suggesting that intelligent use of rapid antigen testing, this is for healthcare workers, but for others, could actually cut down the isolation time. But then you've, got to, then you've got to have a very consistent process, you've got to have enough rapid antigen tests around, and you've probably got to be able to monitor the rapid antigen tests. That's so interesting. So can we talk then a little bit about what individuals can do to navigate this like hectic time that we're now finding ourselves in again? The threat of the virus is very present. So what, what should individuals be doing in terms of accessing tests? Or if you test positive, like what do you do next? How do, how do we get through this next phase? Well, step one, get your booster. And if you possibly can, um, that's going to give you extra and added protection and maybe even a bit of more protection against transmission. So that's a really important thing to do. If you've got kids under 12, get them immunized as quickly, you know, get that first dose in as quickly as you can. Yes, it's going to be eight weeks before the second one, but that first dose will give them some, uh, some protection. Then you've got to assume that you might be infected um, in some parts of uh, the eastern, for example, the eastern suburbs of Sydney. There's maybe as many as one in three young people infected with COVID-19. That's using the underestimate of a factor of five that I just talked about at the beginning of the coronacast. So you've got to assume that you will get infected. So you've got to plan ahead. Do you live by yourself? If you get infected and you're isolated for a few days, who's going to bring you your stuff? Who's going to do your shopping for you? Think about that now. If you're in a, in a share with other people or you've only got one bathroom, how are you going to organize that? Think that through and plan because it's likely you're going to get infected so you don't get caught short and you don't get caught short with nobody to help you in terms of the sort of assistance you might need to just keep going with food and so on. This is assuming someone's well enough to manage their own symptoms at home. Yeah, if you're, if you're vaccinated, you are, you, you're going to be in pretty good shape, almost certainly, but some people won't be. And the other thing is if you really want to be sure and you're worried about yourself, you can get yourself one of those oxygen monitors and monitor your oxygen. But the vast majority of people will be fine. But you really got to consult your GP in terms of how you want to manage this moving forward. But the AMA is saying, well... GPs have not had clear instructions about how to manage this. It's just a bit of a mess at the moment. And then there's lots of people who don't actually have a GP that they can just call. That's true. And if you live in a country town and their books are full, it's very, it's very hard. But um, in many metropolitan areas, there are GPs who are willing to take you on and everybody should have their own GP and should use that excuse now to register with a GP. Well, Norman, when Omicron emerged, we... We developed the Norman Swan Omicronometer. <laughs> I can't even say it. Omicronometer uh, s- scale of panic, which was um, brown trousers were involved in this. I'd like to broaden the shade of your trousers to kind of encapsulate the pandemic as a whole as we're facing it in Australia. Where are you sitting in terms of your level of unease at the moment? So just to, just to remind people, um, you know, zero, which is complete re- relaxation, or one, is uh, lying by the pool drinking a pina colada. Then you move towards putting the pina colada down and run, or you're walking around rather nervously. Um, then it was actually getting a bit dressed for action. And then it was putting on brown trousers. And then it was adding bicycle clips to the brown trousers. <laughs> and, uh, you know, on Twitter, Twitter, some people were saying, you know, what about wearing a kilt? Well, d- <laughs> given no. what a Scott... 
doesn't wear under his kilt, that could be a bit unpleasant. So I'd rather stick with brown trousers and bicycle clips. Anyway, um, coming back to where I stand, I think for hospital hospitalizations and ICU, I, sitting where we're sitting now on Friday the 7th of January, I'd be, I'm with brown trousers and bicycle clips, really thinking right. this through about the people who are working in our hospitals, the stress they're under, the fact that they're utterly exhausted, both emotionally and physically, and that the regular work of hospitals is just not being done, suspending elective surgery, even for people um, who are actually quite urgently in need of elective surgery. I mean, this is a massive problem. So for that, brown trousers and bicycle clips. In terms of the policy implications for the next outbreak with the next variant. I've actually got brown trousers and bicycle clips on as well. For this pandemic, uh, in terms of where it's going to go, I think it's going to peak fairly soon and uh, it'll pass, but we shouldn't be um, complacent about that. So that's just brown trousers. I'll leave the bicycle clips off. I hate leaving this podcast all about a global pandemic on a sour note. So I'm going to introduce a new topic called the Tegan Taylor window of opportunity slash silver linings anonymous. What, what's an opportunity that we have here? What's one thing that we could change right now to, to make you take those bicycle clips off? Um, I think a much, well, first of all, we got rapid engine tests into the country. They were free. So there was no cost barrier to using them. We have clear protocols for rapid antigen tests. I think that that would make an enormous difference. I think when we move to three-month boosters, that's going to make a big difference. And I think that shoring up the international surveillance on, on new variants and watching them quite closely and not shelving completely the idea that we will need to take public health and social measures and maybe introduce an element of TTIQ moving forward. We should not be lulled into a false sense of security. And if we're not in that false sense of security, that is kind of the silver lining. Ventilation, some social distancing, masking, those sorts of things. We should not use this as an excuse to say, let's not bother about ventilation anymore, for example. Well, that's all we've got time for on today's CoronaCast. Now, Norman and I are still, and Will, our producer, are still clinging to some scraps of our holiday. So we're going to be weekly, at least for the next few weeks. We'll see you next Friday. See you then. <laughs> 